This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. There are many different aspects and types of trains in our expanding transit system in Kuala Lumpur and the Greater Klang Valley, LRT, MRT, KTM, just to name a few. But why do we build public transport infrastructure in Malaysia? What's our philosophy? Are we heading in the right direction? How do we compare to cities like Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney, and even Los Angeles? On the show with me today to geek out about public transport in the Klang Valley is Nishal Muniandi. He's a public policy researcher and a committee member of Transit Malaysia. Nishal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Darshan. Great to be here. So, I'd like you to start by giving us a lay of the land. Could you give us a rough overview of our transit system in the Klang Valley? So as of right now, there are about 160 rapid KL stations spread across 228 kilometers of track, 59 KTM stations on 251 kilometers of track, all the way from Tanjung Malim to Tampin in Pulau Sabang in Malacca. We have KTM commuter, which was started on our existing uh, uh, KTM tracks. So this was done to alleviate congestion after which is an interesting fact, our uh, passenger rail service between KL and Klang was actually halted in 1972. And until 1989, there was no passenger rail service between KL and Klang. Wow. And that was and that was using rail buses, well, what the British might call paces. Right. It was basically a, a bus body grafted onto the axle of a train. And we didn't see KTM commuter as we know it start until 1995. And that was when uh, KL, the Greater Klang Valley, was already one of the most congested cities in Southeast Asia. Our LRT systems were actually first proposed in 1981 in the Kuala Lumpur Transportation Master Plan. And they proposed four corridors going out from the, from the old city centre to the northeast, northwest, southeast and southwest. When you look at a map of it, it actually resembles our current Sri Pataling, Klanajaya, and our Putrajaya lines. Right. This was done as in like a sort of a public-private partnership. So it was to be operated by public uh, private companies. So uh, what is today the Ampang Tripataling line was operated by, as some of your listeners might know, by STAR, mm-hmm. System Transit Aliran Ringan. And what is now the Kalanajaya line was operated by Putra, which was the Project Uzaha Sama Transit Ringan Automatic. So these two lines were privately owned. So there was no interconnection. There was no real way to transfer between those two lines. Right. And Machit Jamet was two separate stations mm. back at that time. And then they came under uh, government ownership after the Asian financial crisis right. in the early 2000s. And then you have Monorail, which was actually greenlit in 1989. And it only really started in 1997 under Hitachi. But of course, the Asian financial crisis hit. Mm. So it had to be halted again. And then it was restarted under a company called Amtrans in right. 1998. And that's when we got our locally manufactured SCOMI uh, monorail uh, trains. And then after that, we have our ERL, 
uh, KLIA Express KLIA Transit down to KLIA. So why do we have that? It's, to, it's so that you can connect the new administrative center, Putrajaya, and the airport to the to the city center at KL, new KL Central Station. So KL Central was opened in 2001 and ERL was opened in 2002. Right. Not mistaken. Because the new airport was about 50 to 60 kilometers away from the city center mm-hmm. compared to Subang Airport, which is about 30 to 40 kilometers away. Right. So we needed a very fast way to get uh, passengers, especially international business passengers, to the city center. Mm. And so this was actually, in a sense, our first high-speed, in quotes, rail. Because it went 160 kilometers per hour and we didn't see a train that fast again until the ETS service. Right. So the ETS was come out as a way as, in a sense, to increase the uh, passenger capacity and the speed on our intercity commuter KTM trains. Mm. So as I imagine this, all this while up to about 2005 or so, there was only one track along the entire West Coast. So like, can you imagine like, if you were driving intercity and it was just one lane, one lane for both ways of traffic. And trains at that time took very long to reach their destinations. Mm-hmm. For example, taking a train from KL to Butterworth could take eight hours. Now it's about four hours. It's a huge difference. So this might not have been so much of a problem in the days of the old trunk roads Mm -hmm. because driving took about as long, if not longer. But once the North-South Expressway opened and driving became that much more faster, that much more convenient, the train began falling out of favor with the public. Why take the long, slow, uncomfortable train when you can drive, it's that much faster to drive. And double track, and the, one of the main major uh, improvements was actually double tracking. Hmm. When you put two tracks, so that you can actually have more frequent service going up and down, because you wouldn't have that sort of uh, interference having two trains on that one track. Right. And trains could also go faster, so. Now they go, their design speed is 160 kilometers per hour, the fastest meter gauge trains in the world, if I'm not mistaken. So we've pretty much pushed the the old colonial train gauge to its limits. And we also have the final uh, piece of the puzzle, or I think which is very important, which is MRT. Tell me a little bit more about the MRT. Right. So the MRT actually started life also as an LRT Mm -hmm. project. So it was announced in 2006 by the former Prime Minister Najib Raza as an LRT line, what we now call the Kajang line. It was a Kota Damansara to Chiras LRT line. And then in 2010, when the 10th Malaysia plan was being tabled, it was announced that we changed to an MRT plan. And then they announced that they're using a joint proposal by MMC Gamuda. So that will be the three line MRT lines that we are familiar with today, the currently operating Kajang and Putrajaya lines, mm-hmm. and the soon-to-be-constructed uh, MRT Circle line. So this was meant to serve areas that had not yet had uh, any rail transit, be it LRT or KTM. 
and to connect to new uh, burgeoning uh, centers of employment and residential areas like in Churras, in Kota Damansara, in Kapong, and all the way down to Putrajaya. Nishal, there is a tendency by people living in the Klang Valley to call our transit rubbish. Right, there's a lot of anger. Um, you are on, uh, you know, you, I, I'm sure you have seen it on social media. I'm on social media. I see it regularly. Yeah. Sometimes I feel the frustration as well. I think I've used those kind of language as well, right? And I think that type of energy is necessary a lot of the times to push for change. But when we zoom out and put our analytical hat on, um, how do you see it? How bad or good is our transit system? Um, Putting aside wider Malaysia, because I think we can cover that in another episode, let's just focus on the Greater Klang Valley. I would say that our transit system, compared to our peer cities, what I call peer cities, they are similarly car-dependent, car-centric, places like Los Angeles, places like Sydney. I would say we are pretty decent. Hmm. Not not to say that we are rubbish. We've got a good uh, network of quite frequent rail lines mm-hmm. in the form of MRT and LRT. We've got the beginnings of a good or decent bus network under Rapid KL and GoKL. And we've got the bones of a good regional rail commuter network under KTM. Now, the reason I think why a lot of people call it rubbish is because like, most people are peak hour commuters. When you go... When you take the train during peak hours, you notice it's packed. Or when you look, check on social media, another disruption. Another time the train is delayed without any reason, without any warning. Or when you want to take the bus and the bus takes 30, 45 minutes and you have to wait that long for the bus. So in that sense, we have a lot to improve on with a lot to work on, especially compared to cities that we aspire to be like, places mm-hmm. like Singapore and London. But we have the we have good bones, we have good structure to work on. And I think that at least puts us slightly above rubbish, <laughs> if I have to be modest. <laughs> so I take your point about having a, a skeleton which we can then build on. Um, why do we build public Um, transport infrastructure in Malaysia. Uh, What's our philosophy? I know it sounds like a very basic question, uh, a ridiculous question perhaps. Of course, we need public transport, you know, it's just that, right? But I think there's more to it, right? Because do we build transits, railway, because we first notice a problem and see public transport as a solution to that problem? Or do we build public transport because it is good PR, it would look good, you know, when we talk about our country and on the international stage, or whether it's just cool, you know, especially among, you know, younger folk. Um, What is our philosophy? For decades, public transport has been seen as a way to alleviate congestion. Hmm. KL has actually had one of the first transport plans in Southeast Asia, the 1961 KL Transport Master Plan. And that talked about things like improving bus service, improving the bus terminals. And in the uh, midterm review of the second Malaysia plan in 1973, there was already, which was commissioned by the federal, the federal government actually commissioned an urban transport and planning study to look into how to improve public transport 
and reduce private vehicle usage. Because even by the 1970s, our jam was getting that bad. Right. It was already a serious problem for the federal government. And at the same time, I also concede that in some ways, it is for a sort of branding purposes. We like to talk about our sleek and shiny new MRT stations, mm-hmm. especially the Kajang line of its granite floors, its beautiful architecture. In a sort of way, it's both to serve as congestion alleviation because we see public transport as a way to alleviate congestion where it already exists and as a sort of showpiece in the, in this, uh, in the MRTs, for example, to show that we've made it, we can build good, high-quality public transport. Give us a breakdown of the ridership. And do you consider... Um you know, our ridership, when you look at the numbers, is it low or is it high? Are we doing as expected given our infrastructure um, or is our ridership lower than expected? How do you see it? Right. So as of right now, we've got a ridership of about 900,000 daily riders on both rail and bus. Right. So for a... Metro area for about 9 million people, that's not a lot. Yeah. That is very little. To com- make, to compare to other cities, for example, Sydney has about 1.7 million and Singapore has about 6.5 million. Mm. So, so we could be compared to a place like Sydney or to a place like Chicago, which also is about 1 million plus. Right. But we are far away from places like Singapore. And something interesting to note about our ridership is that it's very rail heavy. So of about 900,000 rail riders, 735,000 is rail and 197,000 bus. It's a huge disparity. Right. For Sydney, it's about 1 million rail and about 700,000 bus. Right. So what does that and tell you? It tells, what it tells me is that our rail system is actually quite reliable hmm. and it's actually quite dependable where, where it exists. When people are able to get to the rail station and when their destination is close to the rail station, especially for rapid KL, which is fairly frequent and fairly reliable, people will use it. But our buses aren't the same. We have less than a thousand buses in Klang Valley as opposed to 6,000 buses in Singapore. So the buses, bus routes are Securitas, they're indirect. You have to wait a long time for the bus. The bus might get stuck in traffic because there's no bus lanes, that sort of thing. And that drives down bus ridership. Hmm. Our bus ridership was actually at about 400,000 in 2015. And now it's gone all the way down to below 200,000. You know, earlier you mentioned um, LA, Sydney, um, and talked about how Actually, when we look at the bones, we look at the network, we look at our skeleton, it's actually better than places like Los Angeles. Um, perhaps even comparable or better than places like Sydney. So what factors uh, contribute to this very low uptake in, in public transportation? Because like you mentioned, 900,000 sort of um, ridership, daily ridership, in a city of 9 million people or, or, or you know, it, it is incredibly right. low. 
right? It's it's what you would hope for is is at least thirty percent, forty percent of the people are taking public transportation. But this is nine hundred thousand out of nine million. What factors contribute to this? See, the factors that contribute to this is one: it's extremely peak oriented. When you see the ridership stats, it's like most people ride public transport to get to and from work. Hmm. And that's about it. Okay. They don't really use public transport for anything else in their day-to-day lives. So, for example, on the weekends, you see there's a big drop-off in public transport ridership. There are very clear uh, peaks and dips in our public transport ridership. And second thing is that, like what I mentioned with the bus, the bus system is what connects the whole network together. It's what makes it's what completes the public transport network. And what we have now is sadly not up to that yet. So that drives down bus ridership, which is a very crucial point for public overall public transport ridership. And our overall built environment after decades of uh, car-centric design, it has made getting to and from public transport more difficult is made driving more easier, more reliable, and cheaper. So most people are, I would say, quite rational, quite logical. They'll look and, because car ownership is already universal in the Klang Valley. Almost everyone owns a car. Mm-hmm. So they'll look, okay, it'll take me less time if I drive. It's more comfortable. I can put my things in the car. And even if I sit in the jam, I can make that jam my so-called my me time. Right. I can listen to my podcast. I am comfortable in my own sort of metal cocoon. I don't have to worry about the outside world. That that all contributes to our low public transport ridership. On the show with me today is Nishal Muniandi, public policy researcher and a committee member of Transit Malaysia. We will continue our conversation after the break. Kibikir on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Nishal Muniandi, public policy researcher, public transport enthusiast. He's a committee member of Transit Malaysia, and we are talking about public transportation in the Greater Klang Valley. This conversation will also be available on podcast, so do follow us on Spotify. Just look up Beyond the Ballot Box and drop us a review. We would really appreciate it. So, Nishal, you say that you know, people in the Klang Valley use or primarily use public transport during peak hours on weekdays. So the purpose, it's it's very utilitarian in that sense that, you know, I I need something to get to work and get back, right? Is this a cultural issue or is it a design, uh, urban design issue? Because whether we look at Malaysia more generally or at the greater Klang Valley specifically, we are a sprawling type of... Um, we design things in a very sprawling uh, manner. Instead of designing incredibly dense cities with mostly high-rise housing, such as, you know, you look at Singapore, Hong Kong, um, what we do is we build vertically, right? Um, so much so that there's housing being built in Seremban to cater right. to people working in the Klang Valley. Um, this is because we have land, um, you can say that as a as a privilege and a curse, however you want to look at it. Unlike Singapore and Hong Kong, which do not right. have land. 
I wonder if this affects our public transport design and usage, or is it more of a cultural thing? I see it as a factor of both. Hmm. On one hand, yes, our urban design encourages and incentivizes sprawl. Right. So as you said, now we have Suramban 2, Suramban 3, Nilai 2, Nilai 3, new developments in places like Sepang, in Rawang, and all of these are big landed property right. that encourage driving. At the same time, we have to wonder, it's also cultural because they build these big landed estates to cater to some sort of demand. The Malaysian dream is to still own a landed property and to drive, to own a car. As you said, when most people who are able to at least drive to the train station, they look at the commute times driving towards the city centre, they look, well, it takes a lot longer to drive than to take the train. So I'd rather take the train. But on weekends, when traffic's a lot smoother, when there isn't that sort of congestion, like, well, it's a lot faster to drive. So I prefer to drive. And that I think also like circles back to our universal car ownership. Mm-hmm. Like in every household, if there's a four-person household, there are four cars. So once everyone has a car, it becomes almost second nature to just choose to drive. Do you wish we lived in more dense cities, a lot more high-rise, less sprawling, um, a lot more... Um, people living in in um, smaller areas perhaps, but, you know, we can walk everywhere, take train everywhere. Do you envision um, or or do you have a fancy for those kind of cities compared to the way we build um, in Malaysia uh, over the past few decades? Yeah, I I wish we would be able to live in a more, not just dense dense city, Mm -hmm. but a more mixed-use city, as you said. Everything is within walking, cycling distance. We have a complete network of pedestrian sidewalks, a complete network of cycling paths so that it's safe for everyone to just cycle where we need to go. So that, for example, all of those short trips that we make to, say, the Kedai Runcit hmm. or to the restaurant just down the corner, we can use bicycles for that instead or just walk. Right. And... By having that more more dense, more mixed-use development, it also incentivizes more public transport usage just by the fact it's a lot more, everything's a lot closer together and you're able to get anywhere you need to go faster and more reliably by public transport, walking and cycling. Hmm. Policies, Nishal, as you definitely know, have this snowball effect. And you start a policy, sometimes you don't know um, where that's going to take you. Um, you, right. you don't com- have a complete picture of how it's going to s- uh, snowball and take a life of its own. I- I'm wondering if lawmakers today, even the more progressive-minded ones, um, once they are actually in a position of power, they feel like they are caught in a rock and a hard place, unable to strike that balance between building cities and infrastructure that would encourage public transport usage. But at the same time, they have to try and also encourage people to buy cars because of 
the very nature of how our policies over the decades have snowballed, right? Because you, you talk about driving to the, the MRT station and LRT stations. I do that sometimes too, which to me is the most ridiculous thing and the funniest thing ever, right? And it's like buy a car so that you can take the train. How is that even logical, you know, in, in that sense? We have these huge parking lots at MRTs, which essentially tells people that if you would like to use the train, you should still buy a car. Yeah, I agree, Darshan. The park and rides are actually the worst possible land use surrounding <laughs> a train station. Because once you get off at a train station, surrounded by park and rides, surrounded by parking lots, there's nowhere for you to go. Right. The best example I can give you is Kosa Damansara MRT station. Right. Interchange between the Putrajaya and Kajang MRT lines. A very important interchange station. But once you get off at the train station, what's within walking distance? It's only a big parking lot. Right. And what's worse is that there's no feeder bus service. You can't get out unless you've either driven there or you take a grab. So... There is a need for to transform these into new development, into walkable mixed-use development, which will be able to generate a lot more ridership. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there will be definitely be backlash because a lot of people, because of the nature of our public transport system, our lackluster bus network, still have to drive to the train station as you have to sometimes. Right. So in the city center, in dense urban areas, there's really, I don't think there's really any need for park and ride. Especially, for example, in Hudu, the uh, less than 200 space parking lot was recent, is being transformed into a new condo development mm-hmm. with, if I remember correctly, more than a thousand units. Right. So instead of having less than 200 people driving into the city center in Pudu and then taking the LRT, now it will be possible for over a thousand people to just walk down from their condo straight to the LRT. And that's the sort of development that we need to encourage. And there will be backlash. Like, for example, at Sfera in Wangsa Maju, there was a big protest when that parking lot was sold mm. to the developer. And some uh, netizens posted things like if you want more people to take public transport you should put more parking lots so more people can drive to the LRT station we desperately need to fix our last mile connectivity issues that means being able to walk to the stations safely near a con- complete network of pedestrian footpaths because as you know in a lot of places the sidewalks are broken they're not well maintained there's a lot of uh, foliage sometimes blocks the path or they just they just stop and you have to walk either on the grass or on the side of the road right and last mile also means things like uh, better bus connectivity we need more frequent buses we need more buses we need to be able to cycle to places that are too far to walk to but too close to take public transport and this sort of last mile I think it has been with us for a very long time, I think since the LRTs first came up. But maybe in the far-flung suburbs, places like Putra Heights, 
places like uh, Sikambangan or even further out or Klang, places that might not yet get that last mile fix very soon or which already have very car-centric development, it's fine to have some parking rights at the stations so that it incentivizes suburbanites to instead of them driving all the way into city center, they drive to the train station and then they take the train into the city center. Mm-hmm. It's not great. It's not a, the perfect solution, but it's one way to at least reduce the amount of driving that we do, especially those in the suburbs, and get to an, at least a car-like society where we can reduce the number of cars that we own. You know, earlier you brought up, was it Kwasa Damansara or Kwasa Central? I always get um, um, confused between the two. Uh, Kwasa Damansara. So, Kwasa Damansara, right? So, you, you gave that um, station as a, you know, what a, a sort of bad example of, of planning and design. In contrast, um, just a couple of stations away from that, there is the uh, Suryan MRT station, um, which... Right. To me, it's not perfect. Like you said, um, the bus frequencies and all uh, definitely should uh, be improved there as well. I think that's across the board all over Malaysia. But I'm wondering if that Suryan station is a good example because it is connected to a shopping mall. Beside, there is a park and then there are PPR flats. There is the Sunway Giza um, um, Square where you can do shopping. A little bit walking distance o- uh, away from that. You have another shopping mall in the Strand. Um, and then there are there is uh, restaurants and all uh, there as well. Um, you have two to three parks around the area. You have a lot of... Um, you have a, a development of uh, private um, um, housing um, and also a lot of PPR flats and, and low-cost housing in the area. Do you consider the Suryan um, MRT station a good example? Well, yeah, Suryan is actually a good example of a suburban station in Klang Valley that has actually done quite well. Hmm. Like, like you said, Ashwin, there is there are two malls within the three malls in the vicinity, and the third mall, which is the Tropicana Gardens right. Mall, also has mixed use residential and commercial development directly connected to the MRT station. Right across there's the uh, commercial area and across from that there is the Strand commercial area. There are parks all around. It's a lot, it's very easy to get two destinations around that area by walking from the MRT station. So yes, we need more of that sort of development and just up one station up is uh, Kota Damansara station. Mm-hmm. which also has like the uh, low-cost flats like right next to the station. So it really benefits uh, low-income households, low-income individuals who want to be able to use public transport. Another aspect I also want to talk about, because I think this is um, often ignored or not talked about enough, and that is OKU-friendly infrastructure. What should a proper OKU-friendly infrastructure look like when discussing this topic of public transportation and encouraging people um, of all aspects of life, um, um, you know, facing various different types of challenges to be um, using public transport? How do you see good OKU-friendly infrastructure? Good OKU-friendly infrastructure would include things like wide sidewalks to be able to accommodate those using wheelchairs. Uh, 
It will include uh, tactile paving for the blind and audible uh, crossings. So, for example, when the, when a blind person goes to, a, to the crossing, to cross the road at the pedestrian crossing, and presses the button, how would they know that when the light changes from red to green? Right. If there's no if there's no audible cue. So, in places like Hong Kong, that when you, you know, it goes beep, beep, slowly when there's when it's red. Hmm. And when it's green, it beeps very fast. Beep, 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 beep. It's like a very... Uh, it's like uh, almost like a symbol of Hong Kong. Like when you hear that beep, you know, you know it's Hong Kong. So that's one way to do it. So, so that blind people can cross the street safely. At stations, it includes things like, again, tactile paving, uh, lifts. And when you're on the platform, you, you need to have uh, announcements on when the train is arriving or when the next train is coming. And this is, I think, fairly recent. I remember when I took the Ampang Street Pataling line, which is, as you know, it's two lines on one common section of track in the city center. Hmm. And this was at a time before they had the announcements at the platform that they do now. So a blind man came onto the LRT and he asked, oh, is this train going towards Ampang? Because they didn't announce where the train is going. Hmm. There was just the... Uh, passenger information display. This is train going to Ampang, but there's no audible announcements. So he had to go on board the train and ask his fellow passengers, "Is am I taking the right train? Mm. And then that sort of can also be a barrier, a hurdle for the disabled, particularly the blind, to take public transport. I want to discuss, um, you know, a little bit about future prospects. Um, as we know, um, you know, we are still building um, our public transport infrastructure in the uh, Greater Klang Valley. Where do we go from here? You've discussed problems. Um, you've discussed um, some of the positives, um, you know, within uh, our public transport um, infrastructure. And you said that it's a good skeleton. Um, we need to expand. We need to build upon it. Where do we go from here? So right now we do have two new uh, rapid transit lines coming up. We mm-hmm. have the LRT3 mm-hmm. from Bandarutama to Klang and the MRT3 circle line. All important uh, infrastructure needed to get more people use public transport, to connect more areas that are very densely populated, places like Monkiara, Sriatamas, which don't have that high quality rapid transit yet. And of course, to the Western Klang Valley, Shalam and to Klang, where the KTM commuter doesn't really go into places of high intensity development. At the same time, once these two real projects have been completed, we need to seriously look at our bus network. Hmm. Because so far, a lot of focus has been on rail, new MRT lines, new LRT lines. How do we extend them? How do we build new line, rail lines? without looking into our bus network. Right. So like I shared earlier, Sydney has about 650,000 bus riders. We have less than 200,000. So we need to be able to look into that and learn how do we increase bus ridership. I mean, we have fewer buses than Los Angeles. (laughs) LA Metro alone has 2,300 buses. Rapid Gear has less than 1,000. And Los Angeles is known as being a very car-oriented city where everyone drives. On, on the issue of buses, right? 
I, I know at one point what policymakers envisioned is like a fishbone. Um, that will be our rail network. And then in every station, there will be a bus stop and then you will have an MRT bus or, 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 an, right. L, or an LRT bus kind of thing, right? Is that enough and then we just times the frequency times three, for example. If now it's coming, I think it's a massive problem. It, it, a lot of places, it's like once every half an hour, right? Is that enough? If we Is it enough if we just increase that, right, to let's say every 10 minutes or every 15 minutes, for example, to start off? Would that be sufficient or do we need more bus infrastructures, new bus lines, um, things like the BRT or maybe bus lanes and and different thing, uh, different types of, of um, you know, uh, or imagine things a lot differently in that sense? Or is this idea of, you know, this fishbone philosophy, is that sufficient? And are we just looking at infre- uh, just increasing frequency? How do, how do you see that? The fishbone is actually one way to, to look at it. Like sort of you take the bus to your local MRT or LRT mm-hmm. station, then you take the MRT down and then you take the bus again to your next destination. Right. So what I'm thinking of is more like a grid. Hmm. So we have so we have the rail line going up somewhere and then we overlay a grid of bus lines on top of that so that you could get from any destination to any destination using public transport. And it's not enough to just add buses. We can just add, 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 add buses. But when we don't fix why do people why people don't use buses, you'll just get a lot of buses bunched up together and your frequency will still suffer as a result. Right. As I'm sure you've seen like during in KL during peak hours, you can sometimes see two or three of the same uh, buses from the same line stuck together in traffic. Right. So we'll need bus lanes that are enforced so that private vehicles can't intrude into them. We will need uh, something called signal priority so that at junctions, the traffic lights can detect when the bus is coming and then give an early green light so that the bus can keep moving without having to stop. And we need to rework the bus network into that frequent grid I was talking about. The last time uh, Rapid KL tried to do this, it was with the bus network revamp in 2015 and I'm sure that a lot of people either haven't heard about the bus network revamp or have forgotten about it that was when all of your U buses U82 U88 became your three numbered buses Hmm. 802 780 that sort of thing when we look at LRT3 and MRT3 I guess I have a two-fold question Um, firstly how big of a game changer if at all, is LRT3 and MRT3 going to be, especially LRT3, because it's going to be launching in maybe a year uh, or so. Um, There is also MRT3, which hasn't begun construction, but a lot of public transport enthusiasts and advocates are really keeping a close eye on on that as well. Um, How big of a game changer is that going to be? And looking beyond LRT3 and MRT3 and beyond, um, you know, improving our bus networks, like you said, I think some really good ideas there. Do we continue or to build more LRTs and MRTs in the greater Klang Valley? Or have we reached a point that, okay, after MRT3, I think we are set in terms of rail networks, um, just improve the buses, and then we can just start focusing on all the other states in the country. Um, 
see with LRT3 and MRT3, those are very important projects, hmm. in my opinion. So LRT3 will bring rapid transit to the western parts of Klang Valley, to Klang, to Shah Alam, to the high density, high growth areas that have actually grown away from the KTM commuter. Mm-hmm. And that will make it a lot easier to commute from those places towards, say, PJ, to Subang, to KL. But the potential, that potential has been blunted slightly because of, you know, the where during the last, like what, previous, previous administration, there was like the round of uh, cost-cutting measures. And one of it was that the uh, LRT3 would be using shorter trains, less frequency, and just the design of it, for example, at Glen Mary, you have the Glen Mary station on the Klanajaya LRT. And then for the new Shah Alam LRT, there's another station, Glen Mary 2. Hmm. So two separate stations with a long walkway in the middle. So that will definitely disincentivize users from transferring. And as for MRT3, it will be great for uh, users who don't have to get into the city center, who just want to go around the center. So it, at key interchange stations like Pasasani or KL Central, you have a lot of people just interchanging between lines. So this will sort of alleviate some of that pressure and to get and to get more people to, to be able to commute around in the suburbs rather than going into the city center itself. But I don't think we have really reached that point of maturity just yet maybe in the future we can think about adding more rail lines as and when needed mrt3 won't be the last rail line i think just just like as we thought before with the completion of the first two lrt lines don't work those weren't the last rail lines right but at the same time right now the focus has to be on the the bus network if rail is the backbone as frequently been said, then the bus network is like our nervous system. It connects everything together. And before we wrap this conversation, Nishal, would you have some closing thoughts or a final message for us? We have that good skeleton to build on. We have a great, the great bones to which are built on a great public transport network. And KL is full of potential. We just need the political will, we need the resources to act on that and to be able to build up on what has been built up so far. And I think, yeah, with time, with enough uh, advocacy, with enough pressure and with enough fighting for a good public transport network, we can have that good public transport network. We can't just like sit down and accept. It's never going to happen. If we do that, it will never happen. If we keep fighting for a good public transport network, we'll, we can get that network, I believe. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Nishal Muniandi, public policy researcher and a committee member of Transit Malaysia. If you enjoy conversations like this, do check us out on podcasts. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box. We would appreciate it if you could drop us a review on Spotify. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.
You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.